Hey, it's me, your barista. You know how you come in almost every day for our cold foam coffee? Well, now there's an easy way to foam at home with new International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. And it's foaming delicious. New International Delight Cold Foam Creamer. Now in stores. It's foaming delicious. Hey, friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me, and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Hey, friends, and welcome to the very first Wednesday in March. Welcome to March, you guys. We have made it. It has been a crazy couple of weeks for those of us in Texas, and I know other people, and so I'm grateful for today, and I'm grateful for this episode. Friends, this is exciting. Let me tell you why. Just yesterday, on Tuesday, March 2nd, Aaron Ivey, my husband and I, released our book that we've been so excited about and working on for a while called Compliment. This book is a book that's been on our heart about marriage and why we think marriage is not only beautiful and not only God's idea, but it can be fun and it can be fulfilling and it can be thriving. So if you're looking for a book on marriage, check our book out. You can get it anywhere books are sold. It just released yesterday. It's called Compliment, The Surprising Beauty of Choosing Together Over Separate in Marriage. We think this book is for anyone who is interested in creating a marriage that is mission-minded and a marriage that lifts each other up. And maybe you're not even married right now, but you're thinking about marriage. We believe this book has some good things for you as well. Also, we have a Bible study that also goes along with the book that released yesterday. So maybe you lead a small group and you'd like to go through that Bible study, or maybe your church is interested in well. It has seven sessions with videos and a Bible study workbook. So check those out wherever you get books. Okay, friends, today is a fun episode because my husband, Aaron Ivey, is actually the guest. Now, if you've been here a while, you know Aaron is not new to the podcast. He's been on here a handful of times. We've been on here together, just having a fun conversation. He interviewed me last fall when my book, UBU, released. But today, it is a full-on interview of Aaron Ivey. I ask him the questions that I know some of you might be wondering. We talk about what it's like to be an artist and a creative and how he's seen that change over the last 20 years of his life. We talk about how this summer he walked through a hard season with depression. And we talk about that from his perspective and my perspective. We also talk about marriage. And he says some of my most favorite things about why he wants to see me walking out my calling and how important it is and how he is a supporter of the things that God is doing in my life. I promise you're going to love the episode. I loved it. I almost cried. I probably did cry. It's so good. Here is my conversation with my husband and co-author and the daddy to my kids, Mr. Aaron Ivey. Aaron Ivey, welcome to the happy hour. I am so honored to be on the happy hour with Jamie Ivey. Thanks for having me. (laughs) You're welcome. It's not your first time here. It's not my first time, but it has been a while. It feels like I was kind of starting to wonder if I had done something wrong or not done enough. Well, now I have all these other men on the show. <laughs> I know. I noticed. So I'm not high on the priority list anymore. You know, forever, years and years, there were no men welcome at the happy hour. Right. And then... Then you had me on. And then I had you, and it was like, well, you're my you're my man, of course. Mm-hmm. And then I had one more exception. I had Jonathan Pitts on, who yep. was the husband to my friend Winter, who passed away three years ago. Mm-hmm. And then we did the Your Last Decade. Right. And, and I had men on. having men on. Yeah, because I was like, it's your last decade. It's not really the happy hour. I like that you've made the change. Thank you. It feels you. like I you opened too. up a new horizon for so many different voices to come on. I've loved it. Do you know what man pushed me over to make the change? Me. No, because you're always welcome. 
No, no, no. But remember, we had a conversation. I was like, you should do it. You've always encouraged me to do it, actually. Do you mean there was a guest that you had that pushed it over the top? Mm-hmm. Do you to know who have... it was? Was it Colt McCoy? No, Colt was my very first dude on, he was on Your Last Decade, Your Last Decade. in January of 2020. Right. Mm-hmm. No, but later in the year, I think I've told this on The Happy Hour before, Lindsay booked Lecrae. That's right. I remember you coming back. You came home and you were like, I think I'm going to start having men on all the time. Because she booked him for Your Last Decade. Right. And I was like, I don't want to talk to Lecrae about his last decade. I just want to talk to Lecrae. Right. And so I did. I talked to Lecrae and he was not on your last decade. It was on the Look, happy hour. I'm just glad you're not silencing men anymore. <laughs> you were oppressive and you were holding men down. And so I'm glad that now there are equal rights for men on the happy hour. You should stop <laughs> before you get funny. yourself in trouble. That's Somebody listening is going to think I'm actually serious. I'm not. Well, this is like, this is fun and this is March 3rd. And so the exciting thing is that you and I wrote a book together mm-hmm, that just mm-hmm. released yesterday called yeah. Compliment. And we've been talking about it a lot, but you know, I decided I wanted to have you on today as you. So not- I think that's my question. Is this like, we're just talking together? Like we're co-hosting or is this like, I'm a guest? On You're your- a guest on the happy hour. Will I get my photo on like the actual Instagram yes. post? It'll say guest Aaron Ivy. Yes. Now that is a first. Yes. I know. I know. Okay. So here's the truth. We have some new listeners. They may not actually know much about you or what you do. So what do you do in life? I feel like I do a lot of different things. I was telling somebody the other day, they were like, how are you handling like just, it seems like your life has been in a bit of transition because for so long I was just a worship pastor to church. Not just, like that's a that's a big job and there's a lot that goes with that. But I think in the last couple of years that has gotten wider and wider, you know? And so now I still do lead worship. I lead our creative team at the Austin Stone. Creative team is made up of film and story, music, And we have a record label, a micro label, design, communication, and production. So that's an amazing team of people. I get to help lead that team and pastor that team. I'm also an elder. I also am one of the preaching pastors. So I preach, you know, 15 times a year or so at our downtown congregation, which meets downtown Austin. I'm also a dad to four teenagers. I'm a husband. I'm a mentor. I'm discipling someone and kind of always have somebody in my life that I'm discipling have done that for about 15 years. I'm a songwriter. I write songs for our church and help other people write their songs. I'm writing a book right now, wrote a book with you. So it just feels like it's very wide right now. There are some days where I'm like, which hat am I putting on? Which Aaron am I? But I kind of like that. Like it keeps it really interesting for me. I don't feel like I'm in any sort of rut. I don't feel bored or apathetic you know, complacent with my life at all. There's enough things that kind of keeps me really energized and passionate and creative, honestly. Yeah, I love it. I mean, we've been married 20 years this summer, which congrats to us, by the way. Congrats to us. 20 years this summer. And I would say that I've seen so much growth in everything you just listed in those 20 years. I mean, you know, when we got married, you were, you know, an associate student pastor. We Mm -hmm. were in college. Then you took your music on the road and you traveled full time for, you know, five or six years. And then we moved to Austin and we moved here. A lot of people would think you were doing what you're doing now. Right. I was not. You weren't doing anything based. I mean. No, we didn't move to Austin for a job necessarily at the Austin Stone. There was a worship pastor here and I just kind of filled in. I did like one Sunday a month, something like that. And I look back at that time and I'm like, what else did I do? I mean, we were still traveling on the road a little bit as Aaron Ivy band, but there were so many days where I would wake up, you know, we had little kids ish at that time. I remember I would get on the bus because I loved 
being around just like life, like normal life, normal people kind of stuff. Like I didn't ever, and I still don't hang out a lot in like the church office. I love being in the city. I love just being around like life, not necessarily like interacting with people, but I would get on the bus, like the public bus, whatever mm-hmm. it's called. And uh, it was about a 45 minute bus ride downtown from our house. And I would listen to music. I would journal. I would write. I'd get out at downtown. I'd go to a coffee shop. I would journal, write, read, just a lot of like intake, you know, reading stuff. And then uh, a couple hours later, I would get back on the bus and another bus ride hour home. That was a really interesting season of life. I don't have that liberty anymore. I mean, to take a day and just ride the bus around, I'm pretty sure (laughs) I would get fired from, you know, the list of jobs that I have. But that was also very formative because I loved being around stuff and life and just having kind of eyes open watching what was going on around yeah. me. I think it's interesting when people can look at what they see someone's life and assume a couple things, assume that this is what they always wanted and also assume that this is where they've always been. Mm-hmm. And I think even when I think about both of our lives individually and yours in particular that we're talking because you're my guest today, right. this is all about you, mm-hmm. uh, to just see that journey of getting here. And you know, it sounds cliche to say I never could have imagined being here, but I don't think, and you probably had a larger view than me, and my small view as parenting small kids during that time, I could have never imagined what you're doing now. And maybe you could have, but it just felt so so far and so big. And I think I was also super content and super happy. So the transition from where you were to where you are now, I don't think it had anything to do with contentment. I think it's just God, you know, growing and opening doors and moving things. Yeah. I mean, I definitely couldn't have imagined where we are at or where I'm at when we first moved to Austin. Was it 13 years ago? Yeah. 13 years ago, 2008. Uh But I definitely couldn't imagine this kind of life when I was graduating from college. Yeah. There's no way. I thought at best I would be a part of a band and write some songs and have some songs on the radio and albums out there. And that did happen. And I was content with that, but I always felt like there was something more that I needed to be doing with my life. You know, we lived in Nashville for six years. I was a part of a touring band there. And so we were on the road 250 days a year for three years straight. Oh, I remember. Oh, I know you remember. (laughs) And you were super supportive in that season and never made me feel guilty or like I was doing something wrong. You were really supportive in that. But I did always feel like there was something missing, like that I had something else I was supposed to be contributing to the kingdom and to the world, to people. And I remember we were on a label. It was a really small label, but it was a great, great label. They were super supportive. And I remember having a thought of like, this isn't what I want to do with my life. I had become friends with some people that were at the end of the road that I was on. You know, like they were 20, 30 years ahead of me on the same journey I was on as a touring band on a label with songs on the radio and all that kind of stuff. I became friends with those people, a few of them, and they were good people, but I didn't like who they had become. They had some great trophies in a cabinet. They had a lot of success. They had a lot of like money. They had stuff, but I didn't like who they had become. They weren't really connected to real people. They didn't have people in their life that they were giving their life away for. And not all of them, but just a few stuck out where I was like, I don't think that's what I want. Mm -hmm. I don't want at the end of the day just to be known as a guy who has like a couple Dove Awards, a Grammy, Mm -hmm. a trophy in a cabinet. I just started to feel like for me, there's got to be something more that I'm put on the planet for. And so about a month later, I walked into the office of the president of this label, who was a man who was very supportive. And I told him, I was like, I know that we're in like a three or four record contract and you normally can't get out of those. 
but I think that the Lord is telling me that I need to do something different with my life, that I need to be pastoring people. I need to be in one spot and really pour my life into people, like one-on-one people and help grow them and shepherd them. And I don't think like touring in a band can accomplish that. And so I'm asking, could I get out of this label deal? And he was quiet for a little bit and he was super kind and godly in this moment for sure. And he said, man, I believe in you. I see great stuff in you. Who am I to stop what God wants to do through you and in you. So I'm going to do what I normally don't do and what I shouldn't do. And I'm going to let you free from this record contract. And that was huge. Like I remember that. I'll never forget that kind of freedom of, okay, God has something for me to Mm -hmm. do. And just because it's not this, it's okay to walk away from it. Even though it was incredibly scary. That was our livelihood. It was six guys on full-time salary. And that's where our whole income came from. And in one conversation around a conference table, that all ended. Yeah. And then we entered into a season of, okay, God, we'll go anywhere. We'll do anything. What do you have for us? Yeah. And that was, a, I don't know, season of six months or so of just really searching and trying to figure out what God had for us next. Ultimately, it was Austin, Texas yeah. and kind of morphed into the role that I have now, which now is the dream job because primarily what I do, I'd say 80% of the time, has nothing to do with music, has nothing to do with worship leading, has everything to do with investing in people and developing them, taking them from where they're at to a few steps forward. And I love that. So good. If you don't know it, guys, I'm a Texas girl through and through. I've lived here most of my life. I was born here and I love traveling. Here's why I love traveling throughout Texas, because it has a vast landscape of cultures, regions, destinations, and activities, which means there's an infinite number of different travel experiences. And no two travelers are exactly alike. And it means that no two trips should be either. If you're a beach person, well, you can have fun under the sun with Texas's 350 miles of coastline. If you're more of a rugged vacation type, there are campgrounds, hiking trails, and state parks galore. And foodies cannot get enough of Texas's world famous barbecue and Tex Mex. Enjoy live music, visit internationally recognized art museums, and check out thrilling cowboy experiences. And now, Travel Texas offers a one-of-a-kind online trip builder that allows users to generate a custom, visually-led trip matched to their unique interest. Guys, come visit my state. Visit TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn to get the only trip to Texas that matters. Yours. That's TravelTexas.com slash GetYourOwn. I remember a season in your life. It was before this story that you just told. We lived in Nashville and you, like you said, were in a touring band and you'd been following Jesus since college and been working in ministry since then. And you had a moment. I've experienced a moment as well. I've talked about on the show before about how I felt like I got to do something besides just be around Christians all the time. And that led me to the county jail for three years volunteering. You had a moment like that as well, where you just felt like I've got to, you know, pour out someplace else. Mm -hmm. And it led you to working at Starbucks. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, I started to realize that the only people that I had any contact with were Christians. And it wasn't even one-on-one. It was behind a microphone, on a stage, elevated four feet above them, one-way conversation, just me singing or talking. And I didn't like that. I didn't like that when I looked at what Jesus did, it didn't look anything like that. 
He was rarely on a stage. He was the times that he was delivering sermons. It definitely is a smaller number than when he was one-on-one interacting with like non-followers of Jesus. They weren't converts yet. They were broken. They were prostitutes and they were alcoholics and they were paralytics. They were losers. They were no names. And that's not who I was hanging around. I was only at churches five days a week. And there's nothing wrong with serving the church and doing that as long as it's balanced with also like being out in the world, you know, like actually friends with people that don't know Jesus yet. How in the world are people supposed to ever meet Jesus if Christians aren't actually around people that don't know him? And so I got really convicted about that and decided to take six months off of touring and being on the road. And I remember having a conversation with you. I was like, man, I don't really love people. I don't know how to love people. And you looked at me and you're like, well, maybe you need to learn how to love people again. And so I applied for Starbucks because at the time living in Murfreesboro, Tennessee, that was the coffee shop. It was the only one. (laughs) And so I went in and applied and I remember applying with an older gentleman who um, he was familiar with like our music and familiar with what we do. And he was like, so confused. He's like, why are you applying at Starbucks? At that time we had like songs on the radio and it was upward momentum and all that kind of stuff. And I was just really honest with him. I was like, man, I just need to take a break. And I just want to, I want to be around, I want to be around people and learn how to love. And I did. And for six months I stood behind an espresso machine and I made an insane amount of caramel frappuccinos and dealt with really sad people, miserable people, happy people, normal people, angry people. When you deal with customers and customer service, you get around like real people. And usually you see the real raw version of them. But it wasn't the customers that really changed my life. It was the employees that changed my life. Because there I was surrounded by a 50-year-old single mom, a 20-year-old gay man, college students at Middle Tennessee State University, an elderly woman. And I became really good friends with all of them really good friends. And I remember one Christmas, I was working the week before Christmas and I'd heard from most of them that they didn't have a place to go for Christmas. You know, the the woman that was single, you know, single mom, she didn't have any family to go to. And I remember just being heartbroken by that. The friend of mine, the gay man had told me that he wasn't going back to home with his family because his parents didn't accept him. That broke my heart. And so I was around all these people that I loved and got to know really, really well. We happened to have a home And we had nowhere, nothing to do on Christmas Eve. Was it Christmas Eve or Christmas Day? I actually can't remember, but I remember the couple came and then the woman came. I invited all of them and three people came. And, you know, they had a seat at our table and they were around our crazy life. We had two kids at the time that were toddlers. And it was so fun and it was so life-giving. And at that time, it felt like the most Jesus kind of ministry that I had done up to that point. And that was very course-altering for me. Because from that point forward, I've been really discontent with only being around Christians that think like me, talk like me, look like me. And God used Starbucks for that. And we got a free pound of coffee every week. And we got a free pound of coffee every week, and we weren't making a lot of money, so it was nice, too. And We were definitely scraping. Yeah. So that free pound of coffee, and the boys and I would come in, and you would give us free drinks, and it was just great. Sneaky free drinks through the drive-thru. It was really, really great. You drive in that crappy Ford Explorer, remember that thing? Oh, yeah. Falling apart? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I learned so much about people ask me, what's the best education you've had for ministry? And hands down, every time I tell them six months of working at Starbucks. So if you want to learn, if you already are working in a church or you just find yourself kind of in a rut with loving people, man, there's no reason in the world why you couldn't take a season, take a break and honestly, like force yourself into something that might seem uncomfortable or seem different so that you're around people like real people that are different than you. You can't help, if you have Christ, you can't help but fall in love with people when you're actually interacting with them. 
it's so good. I've talked about it on here a thousand times that we learn so much by proximity and yeah. just proximity to people who are different than you. It changes everything you think about them. It's no surprise that 2020 was a hard year. We've talked about our marriage book just came out yesterday, yeah. Compliment. I hope you guys check it out and get it. And talked about how 2020 was a hard year for marriage. You know, March, April, May, June were probably four of our hardest months ever. But it was also a hard year for you individually. Mm-hmm. Do you want to talk yeah. about that? Yeah, sure. Okay. Yeah, in, I guess it was April. Well, so back it up a little bit. I have always kind of had a subtle, I don't know, just this self-awareness that I deal with a constant sadness and I'm an Enneagram three, I'm an achiever. So I've always just had a coping mechanism of pushing through that with work and with creating and producing things. And I've just been able to like kind of stuff aside this nagging feeling of sadness and just being low. I've always struggled with loneliness, no matter who I'm around. The fact that I'm married to the girl of my dreams and four kids and a vibrant team there's always this kind of thread that I've been very self-aware of feeling low and feeling lonely and sad, right? But I didn't tell anybody that because everybody thinks my life is awesome and I always want to present my best self. And there's always been a bit of guilt for admitting to somebody that I feel constantly sad because there's kind of this, I don't know, I feel like there's this kind of scarlet letter on somebody saying, man, I think I'm depressed. You know, it's really easy for people to kind of blow that off and go, oh, I'm sure you're depressed. Everybody's right. depressed. Or what do you have to be sad about? Look at your life. Oh my gosh, you're living a dream life. And so I just stuffed it and stuffed it for years and years. And then through a series of events, it was both coronavirus and quarantine and a lot of really sad things that I walked through with some people on our team and relationships here in Austin. Those coping mechanisms stopped working. And I found myself for about a month feeling an intense sadness that I could not control anymore. I found myself sitting at my desk and just staring at my computer, like unable to work. I found mornings where I couldn't get out of bed and I would be driving somewhere and just lose track of time. And I remember one of the scariest moments was I was driving home from the church office, which is about a 30 minute drive to our home. And I didn't even realize it, but I had been driving for about an hour and a half and I kind of came out of this haze, I guess. And I had no idea where I was at. I didn't recognize what road I was on. I didn't recognize the surroundings. I had no idea how I got there. It was just so robotic in driving that I didn't realize I had driven for an hour and a half in the opposite direction of our home. And that was really terrifying for me to go, man, there's a depth of sadness in me that I can't control anymore. And so I went through several months of counseling. This is all up before what I'm going to tell you about happened in April. And yeah, it was about a year ago. So I've been in counseling, you know, just unpacking like why and what does that mean? What does that look like? Which was helpful. But then in April, I realized, man, I don't have the ability to push through this. And I think that there might be something, something wrong with just my ability to deal with sadness. I didn't use the word depression. I didn't even want to pursue that label. Uh, but I met with my counselor again and then met with the psychologist and man, just kind of came to the reality that clinical depression was something that I had been dealing with for a while, but it was intensified so much that I needed to get some help, some relational health and some medical health. And so I started on some medication in April and that has been a real grace. It's been super helpful. It hasn't fixed everything. There are still days where I still feel super low for no reason. And it's not that anything happens. It's not situational depression, you know, but the way I explain it and anybody listening that experiences depression would probably resonate with this. This is what it feels like. Somebody asks, like, what does it feel like? What do you mean by you feel depressed? Like you just feel sad. You just feel 
like you're having a bad day. It's not like that at all. It's the best way to describe it is you're living in this beautiful house, this big fat mansion where everything's perfect. You know, in my world, everything's clean. (laughs) Everything's organized. It's beautiful. Picture a mansion in like England, big green pastures everywhere. And inside the house, you have everything that you want. You have family that you love. You have friends coming by. You have everything that you could afford. It's just a beautiful, amazing house. But underneath this house is a basement. And in that basement is everything that's dark, everything that's scary, every fear, an immense amount of darkness and loneliness. And you can try as hard as you can to just live in that house. But for whatever reason, you keep drawn to go into that basement. And once you get in that basement, it's almost impossible to get out. And you're looking up and you're like, man, why am I in the basement? Everything above me is so beautiful and so perfect. But no matter how hard you try, you cannot get out. And that's what it feels like when you're going through depression. And I think where medicine has been a grace is it's kept me from going into the basement. Mm -hmm. I still know it's there. I still can knock on the door and kind of open the door and peek into it. But it's helped me not kind of go to that depth anymore, that level of sadness. I don't know. So that's kind of the way I think about it and describe it to other people that might be wondering if depression is a thing for them. I've never heard that before. Yeah, I don't think I've ever told you that. You haven't. <laughs> Did you make that up? Uh, yeah. That's hard for me to hear because I too, I don't understand it. Yeah. I mean, I'm not telling you anything new, listeners. We're not having our first time conversation here, but right. I don't understand it, you know? And so it's hard for me. And it also makes me really sad because as your wife, I want to be like, I'm up here. Right. Like, I promise I love you and I'll make you happy. Like, mm-hmm. just come upstairs and I'll make you happy. Yeah. And so it makes me sad. But then, I mean, honestly, I'm sure people can relate to this. It has been a struggle for me a little bit to think like, and this is like Satan coming in, of being like, I must not be good enough yeah. to make Aaron happy. Right. I must not be what he wants. I can't satisfy him. All the things. Yeah, we've talked about that. Yeah, and that's been, I think that's been really hard for me this year. And this sounds like I'm like, hey, let me make this about me. I'm not. I'm just being like honest and vulnerable about what it looks like when someone in a relationship is struggling with depression. I think I said to you the other day, or maybe I told this to Shanda, our counselor. We see the same lady. We see the same counselor. (laughs) I think it's great because we do marriage counseling with Shanda. You do counseling with Shanda. I do counseling with Shanda. But there's the confidentiality part where like she doesn't tell me anything that y'all talk about. No. And I think it's actually really helpful. So maybe I was telling her this. And Shanda listens to this podcast. So Shanda. (laughs) We love you. We love you. I think I might have been saying to her, I wish there was a handbook for the spouse. I don't know if I said that to you, if I said it to Shanda. Mm, No. I wish there was some sort of like helpful guide. Like it helps when you do this or this is not helpful. Yeah. And the problem with that is everyone is so different that I think that would be a really hard book to write. But I was sharing with someone the other day about you walking through this and how it's been a journey for me to, you know, we talk about marriage. Our book came out yesterday. This particular thing this summer that we've walked through It has reminded me that in our marriage that I actually am not responsible for making you happy or content or satisfied because I can't. And I think for so many years, you know, when you were talking about you hid this, I didn't know any of this. No, no, I hid it from everyone. And so I think for so many years, I thought I was making you happy and satisfied. And you are happy with me. I mean, you know. Yes, very. But it was a blow to me a little bit to be like, oh, wait, I thought that you were happy. Yeah. And for so long, you haven't been happy. That's hard, you know, to go through. And I think it's been hard for our marriage and yet good at the Mm -hmm, same time, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And it's not even really a matter of happy because I have been happy. And 
there are moments in every day where I am happy. So depression isn't the absence of happiness. I think depression is this overwhelming kind of dark cloud or wet blanket that's on even when you are actually content, even when you do experience happiness. Mm. It's a feeling, it's a weight that you can't push aside. And it's been helpful for me to learn that it's not just a feeling, it's not just an emotion, but you know, it's a, a sickness in the brain. Mm-hmm. Like it's an illness. Like that's something that's been helpful, I think. You know, if I had like my arm was cut, you know, and I walked into the room and I was like, and my arm really hurts, you could look at it and go, I see why your arm hurts. Right. There's a cut there mm-hmm. and it's bleeding. Let's fix it. But any sort of mental illness isn't like that. And so you feel a little bit of shame of going, I have this cut, I have this wound, this illness, but people don't see it. And so it's harder to explain. So you feel a little guilty. You feel shameful, which is why some people hide it. And then you can't hide it anymore. And I think I even in the last six months, nine months or so, however long it's been, I've felt the pressure to not talk about it. But then as a pastor, I've started, you know this recently, even using that more in preaching. I did a whole sermon on anxiety and depression. And so now it's able to be used as a way to help people mm-hmm. to go. Then you're not flawed because of any sort of mental illness. It's actually just a part of your wiring. It's a part of the way that you were formed. And God even wants to like restore that. He might not fix it, but he wants to do something in and through you, even while you have it. That's good. And I've seen you do that. I think it's going to be a blessing to so many people. The more that you talk about it, I think we've had to communicate about it a lot. And, you know, I'm one that can tend to think like, oh, I must be the problem. You know, like I did something wrong. But I think what God's been showing me, like I said already, one of the things, but also is like, I think this just happened just the other day. And I said, hey, are you okay? You know, because you seemed Mm -hmm. off. Yeah. And I think you said, I'm fine. I just feel sad. I don't know why. Yeah. And in those moments, I have to choose to like trust you. To believe what I'm saying. To believe you that it's not me, to trust you and to also go, there's nothing I can do. And so I'm not a bad wife. I'm not a bad person. Yeah. You know, and that's been a journey too as well mm-hmm. for us. How do you think that that depression diagnosis that you had this last year, has it affected anything with like parenting? I remember telling all four kids, uh, you know, I pulled them aside and I was very honest with them. I was like, hey, I know you've noticed that dad's been off this last month or so. And here's why. Here's what I found out. I went to a doctor and they told me that, you know, in my brain, some things don't work right. My brain does not produce something that it needs to help you stay content. You know, it's an actual thing in your brain that's produced. And I explained that to them and told them that I'm getting like help through counseling and I'm taking some medicine that just like you would take if you had a headache or you were sick, you would take some medicine to help out. You know, I was really honest with them about it. So I feel like it's kind of in parenting. I could see it in their eyes. They were like, wow, thank you. I remember Caden pulled me aside afterwards and he was like, dad, thank you for trusting me with that. That's our 17 year old. He's like, thank you. That means a lot to me that you would trust me with that. And there's been even times where another kid, I think of several times that Amos has done this. He's been like, hey, you seem kind of sad. Is it depression? Are you feeling that today? And I'll just be like, yeah, I am. So it's forced me to be more honest. And I think our kids have appreciated that. I'm proud of you. Thanks. It's not always fun to be vulnerable. And it's not always fun to share about the ways that we feel, you know, I'm not saying you are, but you might have felt like inadequate or I'm not enough or I should Mm -hmm. just be able to pull myself up by my bootstraps. Yeah. This is not who I am. All the things. Right. And so it's scary to do that. But thank you for that. For sure. All right. I'm going to switch gears a little bit. Okay. People have asked us a lot over the past month. Why did you write this book? Why did you write this book? And we say there's two reasons. And I'll 
say the first one and then I have a question about the second one. The first one is we see ourselves around younger kids, yeah. <laughs> younger adults, yeah. 20 to 35, this age group of they're like, hey, I'm thinking about marriage. I'm about to get married. I'm dating. And for some reason, they haven't seen a lot of healthy marriages. And right. so we wanted to be like, hey, here's what we believe a healthy marriage can look like. Not a perfect marriage. Yeah. Not We don't have all the answers, but here's how we are chasing Jesus, following God and making him known. That was one reason. The second reason was in the past seven years since I've been doing my job, even in the past five years since I've been doing more work and working full time, we seem to get some questions from people and they don't ever ask this out loud. But what they really want to know is like, hey, who's in charge of your family now that Jamie's like working and stuff? Right. And I'm always a little perplexed as to I don't know what changed and mm-hmm. if it would be different if I was like a teacher versus, you know, a right. podcaster, an author, a speaker. And so that always made me think like, Ben, nothing about our marriage has shifted Mm -mm, in the last 7, 10, 15. We still submit to each other. We submit to Jesus. And at the end of the day, I submit to you as my husband. So my question for you is how does that make you feel when people kind of beat around the bush of asking that question? I think what they're really asking, if you kind of like peel all the layers, what they're asking is your wife is more upfront right now. Does that bother you? I think in our culture, especially our Christian culture, to lead, right? To be the husband means you're out front. And that's actually not true. There are seasons where I have been out front, you know, the touring season where you were at home changing diapers. Most people would say, well, that's kind of what it's supposed to be. The husband is the most upfront leader Mm. of people. But now you are way more out front. God's given you a platform and a voice that from all outside perspectives, you're out front right now. But that doesn't mean that anything in our marriage has changed. Doesn't mean our roles have changed. Doesn't mean husband and wife has changed. There's opportunity and there's room and purpose behind man and woman having different seasons where they're leading out in different ways. And that has nothing to do with like disobeying the scripture of husbands lead and wives submit to their husbands. It actually makes it more beautiful because if anything, in a season like this, I'm having to learn how to really do what the scripture says, husbands lay down your life for your wife. To truly go... I'm for you. I want you to be out front. I'm laying down my life so that God can use you right now in a really beautiful, purposeful way. And I think what's probably true for you is you're having to learn what does submit mean in a season like this? Like you make a lot of decisions that you don't need my input on. You don't even need my opinion on, right? You're upfront leading in those. But still there is this essence of, yes, you do willingly submit to like, the spiritual leadership. I think a difference in leadership is spiritual leadership and like actual practical leadership. So can a woman be a CEO while her husband is working in the assembly line? Some people would say no, because that makes her the stronger leader, which is absolutely ridiculous. Spiritual leadership is different than organizational leadership. Spiritual leadership is so much more about the heart posture than it is about what job you do or what your title is. And so that's how it works for us. Nothing's changed behind the scenes, but you are the CEO of your company and you are crushing it. And when we're invited to speak at things, it's Jamie Ivey and her husband, Aaron Ivey, right? (laughs) But that doesn't intimidate me or I don't shy away from that at all. I think it's actually really beautiful that we do compliment each other in that way. You know, it's interesting. I've never heard you describe it that way as this more out front look right now. Mm -hmm. You know, it makes me think of our friends and Nick and Chris Kane. Yeah. And Chris is- Same thing. Same thing. Chris is very much up front. And I've had many conversations with her about how their marriage works like our marriage does. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, Nick runs A21 and Nick does all these things, but it looks different and some people would say that. Yeah. And I think even in conversations with them, people have asked the same question. So who's the leader of your home? 
it's probably Chris, right? She looks like she's the leader. But in conversations, which is helpful, and it's the same way we talk about it, no, nothing's changed. Yeah. Jobs might change. Influence might change. Number of followers might change. That has nothing to do with it. And if you measure it by that, oh, man, you're going to be in a wreck. So that leads me to ask you this, because I had never thought about it until you just said it just now about that, like the level of maybe like out frontness has shifted in our marriage. I mean, I've known that, but I've never thought that's why they're questioning it. This seems to be a Christian thing that like that's when the kind of conflict would come up. I I don't think like, well, Dolly Parton is a Christian, but she doesn't do like Christian ministry. But do you even know Dolly Parton's husband's name? Nope. No, she's married. Hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah, I know. Is it Kenny? No. (laughs) But you speaking Kenny Rogers? Uh Uh-huh. No. But the point I'm saying is I feel like it's like Christian culture thing. Yeah. My next follow-up question would be, to me, that feels like it's so harming to women. Mm. That there is this over, and again, we are generalizing and we're making assumptions, but we're not saying everybody. But if there's this view that in a marriage— the leader, quote unquote, is the yeah. one who's the most out front, doing the most in front, like you would notice him the most. But what happens when that turns into a woman? Yeah. Don't you think that's harming to women? Yeah, I do. I think it's because for so long in church world and in the way we communicate and the way we identify leaders, it's based on what do you do when the scripture and God's heart is like, who are you going to be? And so it's not really about like what you do like as a woman. It's about who are you going to be? What kind of woman are you going to be? What kind of man are you going to be? I think that's what's been flip-flopped in Christian culture. There's been a stereotype of, okay, what are you going to do as a woman? Well, back in the day, you were going to stay at home. You were going to clean the dishes. You were going to take care of the kids. And what would the husband do? He would work really hard. He would make sure there was food on the table and make sure there were pretty cars in the driveway. And that is such a stripped down bland version of what God intends it to be because he always cares more about who we are going to be than what we're going to do. And so if you're focused on who you're going to be, then that leaves it wide open for God to use man and woman in countless ways, you know, of leading things and creating things and having different kinds of jobs and different expressions of those jobs, but still at the center focused on who do I want to be though? Mm. What kind of man do I want to be? What kind of woman do I want to be? Yeah. You know, I think I saw this when my journey started taking me, you know, into working and doing podcasting and stuff like that, that I love. And I'm so, I love my job so much. I became friends with Jessica Honiger, who Mm -hmm. if you're a happy hour listener, you probably are familiar with her. She's the CEO of Noonday Collection. And we've been friends since she started that. So, you know, 10, 11 years ago, I remember watching her on that journey yeah, and wondering, how does this, even myself, I found myself early on wondering, how does this marriage function? You know, her husband, Joe, at the time was doing real estate, and then Jessica's rising up in this leadership role. And she's been such a, her and Joe both have been such a beautiful example yeah. of yep. the way that they're using their gifts. How would Joe ever tell Jessica not to do that when right. she's changing right. the world? Right. Well, that's kind of goes back to what I was saying, like head of household, which I do think is scriptural, like God gives headship to the man, not in an authoritative way, but in a servant way. You are the head, you're the lead submitter, you're the lead servant, you're the lead lover, you're the lead forgiver. There is headship that the Bible talks about, but headship has nothing to do with your job or what you do. It's all about posture of heart, posture of service. And so a great example with Joe was there was a season where he was at home every day. And a lot of people would look at that and go, okay, well, I guess you're not the head of the household anymore because of what you do, which is just totally opposite of really what like the scripture is talking about with head of household. It's all about the heart, who you're going to be. And I think we just miss that because we oversimplify it into if you're a leader, 
then you are, you know, just a leader. And so if you're a follower, then you're just a follower. But both you and I flex all the time in leadership and followership. But at the end of the day, we still do believe that there's a responsibility, a Mm -hmm. weight, a burden, if you will, of headship Mm -hmm. for me to serve you and to help you flourish Mm -hmm. in everything you're doing. And there's no cap to that flourishment. It's not like I want you to flourish as my wife as long as you're not a mayor or as long as you're not a CEO of a company. Mm -hmm. That would be bogus. Yeah. And I think that it's freeing up right now for women to hear that. But I think men need to hear that as well, because I don't think it's been represented well in the larger American evangelical church. Right. Again, I'm saying American because this is not true around the world, but I see that a lot here. And so we have a lot of people who have grown up not understanding what you said about it's not what you do, but who you are. Right. And it's freeing when you it's freeing within a marriage that I want to see you flourish. Yeah. And you want to see me flourish. And that can happen and it could look different in every marriage and in different seasons as well. Well, I think when you mentioned, you know, that kind of paradigm, I think whether it's in the church, like conservative evangelicalism, or if it's in just the family, I think for men where that comes from is it's driven by fear. It's fearful of if this woman leads more or is out front more than I am, then there's a fear of, oh man, it's a slippery slope and Mm. we're going to be turning into liberals. And then, you know, it's all about, you know, power of woman and men stay down. There's, it's driven by fear. Mm. It's not driven by love. It's not driven by wanting the other person to flourish. It's Mm. not driven by consider others more important than yourselves. It's driven on fear. We want to protect this. We want to make sure that we are in control and that has to die for it to be truly what God intended it to be back with Adam and Eve in the garden where things were perfect. There was a beautiful submission and headship, but there was also liberty and there was freedom Mm. and there was growth. And that's kind of what we have to get back to as much as we can is to restore that drive for, I love you, therefore I want to see you thrive. And I'm not going to be fearful that your flourishing is going to mean my diminishing. It's so good. So much of the stuff that we deal with is based on fear. Oh, yeah. I mean, we could talk about this in politics. Yep. We could talk about this in parenting. Yep. We could talk about this in church. Right. We can talk about it all day long. This based on fear. That's really, really good. How am I doing so far You're as, doing as uh, so your guest? Great. I feel like I'm in the hot seat. I feel <laughs> like this is not our normal, like, you know, banter. You're grilling me, which is great. I love it. How Keep am going. I doing? Answering, great. asking you questions. Well, you're asking me, what's your favorite thing you're cooking right now? <laughs> I'm glad you're asking real questions. What is your favorite thing you're cooking right now? I'm not cooking very much right now. Like our life is so amplified right now. It's so big right now, it feels like. I don't mean big, like we're awesome. I mean, (laughs) we're we're so busy. We're so like every night there's something. I don't know. It's been a while since I've like had a throwdown where Mm -hmm. I cook for four hours. I'm ready for this, babe. It's survival mode right now. I'm ready for this. I'm ready for this. Mm -hmm. Okay. I would like to ask you this. 20 years of marriage. What's different than what you thought it was on June 22nd, 2001? What's different than what I thought it was going to be? Mm-hmm. I think what's different is I don't think I imagined I would be so proud of my family, of like what God's done in it. I think it's more extraordinary than I thought it could be, you know, and I always had a low view of myself prior to meeting Jesus. So I don't think I had like these grandiose, like some people are like big dreamers, like I'm going to do this, I'm going to take over the world. I had low thoughts of myself and what my life would look like. And so I think I'm more proud of how extraordinary the people are in my family than anything, you know, like extraordinarily proud of our oldest son, you know, having a conversation with him where he's talking about Jesus and talking about what kind of girl he wants to, you know, end up with or what kind of career he wants to have. I'm super proud of that. I'm proud that he's being discipled by somebody like he's actually engaging in, I want to grow 
in Jesus. And uh, this guy is going to help me do that. I'm proud of our three other kids too and how they're like growing and flourishing. I'm so proud of you and how you are just taking over the world and doing awesome stuff. That's been a surprise to me that how extraordinary it's been. Are you surprised at like how awesome I still am? No. <laughs> no. Do you think I like I thought you would the extraordinariness would end? Some people think that. Yes. Really? I mean, marriage gets boring and bland and the other person's like a roommate and Oh, no. That's definitely not been the case for no. us. And it's not supposed to be that way. It's not supposed to be that way. Okay, Aaron, I would like to hear this from you because I think I've heard you answer this before and we're almost done here, but it's 2021 and you have written, you know, a thousand songs under your belt. What do you dream about? Like, what do you dream about accomplishing? What do you dream about doing? When you think about dreaming, what uh -huh. do you dream about? Yeah. Well, I made a goal in 2010. I made at the time what I thought was a radical goal. And I was like, in 10 years, I want to write, produce, record 10 albums, which is a lot. Yeah. I mean, 10 in 10 years, uh -huh. you know, you're pumping out stuff. And I got to 2020 and I looked back and it was like 13. I was like, man, that's amazing. That 13 I was a that you had a hand, on, a hand yeah, in. Yeah, that I had a hand in. They weren't all under my name. Yeah. Mostly through Austin Stone Worship, but writing the songs, helping produce them, all that kind of stuff. And so I have a goal now where... I still love songwriting, but I think if you like pin me against the wall and you're like, what's the one thing you're most passionate about? The one thing I'm most passionate about besides Jesus is discipling people, like taking 20 to 29 year olds and helping them figure out how to walk with Jesus. Right. And so I want to disciple mentor 10 people in the next 10 years. Yeah. In the next 10 years. Yeah. Wow. Right. And so I've had the opportunity to do that with several people and what a privilege, what a gift. I find myself dreaming about that. Like who is going to be the leader that will take my spot like long after I'm gone? Who's going to reimagine what church is like in 2030? Who's going to be writing the songs that the world sings? It's not going to be me in 2030. It's going to be somebody else. And so... You'll still be doing it in 2030. That's only 10 years from now. Yeah, but I won't be the one that's on the forefront. Okay. You know, a 50-year-old is not going to be the most creative or prolific when it comes to songwriting. It's going to be the 25-year-old. And so I want to like pour my life into that crew because I think that is not only the future of the church and the world, but it's the present. It's the right now. Mm -hmm. That's who, you know, if you look at our Sundays, I, I'm the oldest person on stage by far. I'm leading the less. And the two people that were leading with me were both early 20s, yeah. which is crazy because one of them said in the green room, they're like, you know, when you started leading worship, I wasn't born yet. <laughs> I was like, oh, for the love. But I really am fired up about that. Because I think that is the only way that we're going to have really extraordinary leaders is if we all kind of look behind us, look who's 10 years, you know, behind us and go, let me just pour a little bit into you. Yeah. Let me give my life away for you so you can have a step forward. I love it. You know, the 20 year olds and under get a bad rap sometimes with church. Yep. And I see you leading them out and really believing in them. I remember I played this for you, listening to Dr. Moore talk about, if you want to see what's happening, look at campus ministries. Right. And they are on fire and yep. they are chasing Jesus. And they are not, like you said, the next generation of the church. They are the church. Right. And they are changing their campuses and changing their workplaces. And so it's important. And I, I love supporting you in that. Thank you. And you do support me in that because it's a huge sacrifice for you because of the amount of time that I personally put into discipleship. So I know that there are nights where you would rather me be at home, but I have reserved for discipling a person. I know that there are hours that goes into that, you know, just to last night, you know, in the middle of the night. Do you remember this? No. You don't? <laughs> no. Not in the middle of the night. It was like 1230. I woke you up and I was like, oh, I do remember this. Hey, I, I got a phone call. 
I need to help this guy. I remember this. And, so and I, I got don't even bed. remember you coming back to bed. I, it wasn't long. It was like 30, 45 minutes. But there's a sacrifice that it takes yeah. to really pour your life into somebody. And when you make that commitment, you're making a commitment to getting a, a phone call that might be difficult at 1230 yeah. and going, okay, I'm here. Yeah. I haven't always done it well. No. I don't always do it well. True. But you try. But I try. Aaron Ivy, I love you. I love you too. Thanks for, uh, man, thanks for having me on. I feel like a real guest now. <laughs> you are a real guest. And since you're a real guest, I need to know, what are you loving and what are you reading? What am I reading? I am reading A Gentle Answer by Scott Sauls. And you just interviewed him, right? Yeah. He's been on the show. It was fire. One of my favorite interviews ever. I mean, literally one of my favorite interviews ever. Mm. I love Scott. He's a friend of mine. And our whole church staff is going through that book right now. Gentle Answer. It's all about how in it's like so us versus them culture, how we respond with gentleness like Jesus did. So I'm reading that and I'm really loving it. What am I loving? Is that what you asked? Yeah. What are you loving? I am loving, this sounds like super new age and hippie, but I'm loving incense right now. I hate it so much. I have a little incense thing in my office, these sticks that I burn and there's a Palo Santo stick that is my favorite. I think I went through five today. I'm glad you do them in your office because I hate them so much. My clothes permanently smell like incense. I, I smelled it when you walked in. Did don't, you really? Don't think I didn't. Yes. Oh my gosh. I love that. And I hate it. I love that. Well, Aaron, thanks for coming on. I'm excited about our book that just came Me out. Me too. Me too. Please pick up that book. Check it out. I think it'll be super helpful. We have a couple friend of ours that they're dating. They're not even engaged yet. And they just started it last week. We've got married friends that are reading it. So hopefully it's incredibly helpful whether you're dating, engaged, or married. I love it. And we have an accompanying Bible study that goes along with it if you want to take things deeper. So Aaron, thank you. Thank you. Love you. All right, you guys, I told you you would love it. I'm a big fan of this man, obviously, after being married to him for almost 20 years, but he had so much wisdom that he shared with us today. I hope that something he said encouraged you. Guys, if you're interested in our book, Compliment, The Surprising Beauty of Choosing Together Over Separate in Marriage, you can get it wherever books are sold. Make sure you're following myself and Aaron on Instagram as we'll be doing giveaways this week for the book as well. Guys, another fun thing this weekend, if you're gonna be at If Gathering, send me a message, tell me hi. It's one of my favorite conferences every single year. We will be back here on Friday with another great show. Today's show was edited and mixed by the team at Podshaper. The music was created by Matt Graham. Show notes are written by Abby Castell and the whole thing organized by Lindsay Sweeney. I'm your host, Jamie Ivey. Have a great week. Have a happy hour and check out our book compliment wherever you buy books. <laughs> <laughs>